Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Sarah Piampiano, a professional triathlete and Ironman champion. On this episode, you'll hear Sarah's journey to becoming a professional triathlete. Growing up in Maine, she had quite the athletic childhood, keeping up with her two older brothers that kept her competitive in pretty much any sport you can imagine. Her professional career actually didn't start in sports, but rather in finance. She was an investment banker living in New York, and similar to other investment bankers, Sarah was putting in over 100-hour work weeks, and she had gained a habit of smoking several cigarettes a day and not making much time for physical fitness. But then, a friendly bet in 2009 was the catalyst that changed her career and her life. That bet was to complete a triathlon and see who would have a better time between Sarah and her friend Todd. Not only did she win that bet, she really loved her first race. And Sarah immediately quit smoking and wanted to do another competition, but this time actually trained for it. And after a few months of training, she completed that triathlon and she won it. And the rest, as they say, is history. On this show, you'll hear about Sarah's journey turning pro at the end of 2011. Since then, she has entered over 65 triathlons and is a well-decorated athlete with multiple Ironman wins and many more podium finishes. I was really grateful to have Sarah on the show, not only because I learned a lot from her, she has a really strong process-oriented approach to triathlon training, and I learned a lot about the sport overall, I didn't know much about it, but I was really grateful also because Sarah shared some deeply personal frustrations and failures. For someone who clearly has so much drive and grit and who applies so much persistence in her mental and physical strength training, I mean, keep in mind, this is a person who had a broken femur and still ran 23 miles in competition. I was surprised when Sarah said she lost confidence in herself. And it really reminded me of why I started the show in the first place. Because I suspect that we all have that moment where we lose our way and our light and our confidence. And I really greatly appreciate Sarah for sharing her struggles because it was so helpful to me to hear how she gained that confidence back and ultimately got stronger. When asked the question of goals and what hers is, Sarah's answer is simple yet powerful, to reach a whole new level. And whether that can be applied to her running or cycling or swimming or overall mindset, it's a powerful goal. I have no doubt that Sarah will continue to reach new levels and obtain those goals because she believes in herself. This conversation truly helped me level up, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I was so excited to have you on the show. It's I was looking at your background, and it's just incredible. You are an elite athlete. Mm-hmm. You have 
won multiple Ironman champions around the world. You've done over 65 Ironman competitions. (laughs) And that's just since 2011, which is crazy because when we did a a call earlier, I'm like, do you know how many you've done? You're like, no. No, I don't. I get asked a lot, actually, how many Ironmans I've done. I'm like, I actually don't even know. It's incredible. And your path there is also very unusual because I think it started on a bet. But if you don't mind sharing kind of from the beginning, you know, where you grew up. I was born in Maine and I grew up in Maine. I come from a a family. I have two older brothers and both of my parents are lawyers. So there was a big focus growing up around education and also around excellence and sort of this expectation around around excellence. But as a kid growing up, it was a really wonderful place for me to grow up in Maine. In some aspects, I felt kind of sheltered from everything that was going on in the rest of the world to some extent. But as a kid, you don't know that. And for me, it was just such a great place to grow up. I was running around. And at two years old, my parents would just open the door and I would be kind of running free and allowing my imagination to run wild. So it was great. As a kid, I did everything. I played softball. I played tennis. I played, I competitively water skied. I ski raced. I ran. I like, I did everything, you know, every sport there was basketball, soccer, swimming, everything. I was doing that, playing hockey, you know, everything. (laughs) Um, So where did you end up going in college? I ended up focusing on running and ski racing, alpine ski racing. And I ended up going to a private high school, Stratton Mountain School in Vermont, which is dedicated towards developing, essentially developing young athletes to get onto their respective national teams. And so I was really wanting to get onto the U.S. ski team and they didn't end up making it. But the agreement I had with my parents, actually, because there's kind of a less lesser focus on academics at some of these schools. And the agreement I had with my parents is that if I hadn't made the US ski team by the time I graduated high school, I would move immediately on to college because a lot of kids take postgraduate years and just try to make the ski team and they delay going to college. So I ended up going to Colby College, which is a liberal arts school in Maine. I went with the intention to ski. It's Colby is a D3 school athletically, but it's actually division one for skiing. So that was a big deal for me um, to be able to ski division one. But I went in intending to ski. And then I had been actually a nationally ranked runner growing up and got very burned out of it when I was in high school and kind of given it up. But when I got to Colby my sophomore year, I ended up joining the cross country and track teams as well. So I ran the last three years of of my time at Colby. Just because you're like, all right, I'm, I'm bored and I have yeah, more time I mean, on my I hands sophomore that, year. Um, <laughs> Let's do that. I really enjoyed being on the ski team and, and there really was a real team dynamic. And I think for me in high school, one of the things that I was struggling with as a runner was I felt very isolated and I really liked being part of a team. And so w- with skiing, for example, when I went away to Stratton Mountain School, one of the great things about going to that school, even though it's an individual sport, is everybody was ski racing and everybody was kind of working towards this goal and there was a real sense of camaraderie and and team and working towards something together even though we were competing as individuals and um I didn't get that in running when I was growing up but I was really good at running and so when I got to college I I had a great first year experience on the ski team and then just decided to kind of try out the cross country team and the track team and see how it would go. And I had a phenomenal coach there and the team was really great. And some of my closest friends who I still am in touch with now are from the cross country teams. So in college, you're doing well academically, you're doing well athletically. My guess in hearing this journey so far would be like, all right, you're going to do something athletically inclined after college. 
which didn't seem to be the case, but I'd love to hear what you did after graduating and how you chose that path. When I was growing up, my dream was to be in the Olympics in either running or ski racing or both. And then I think by the time I got to college, even though I was still competing at a high level, I think I had given up on kind of those dreams at that point. I, I had been burned out of running for a really long time. And when I came back to running in college, I, I was running, but not at the level that I had been previously. I was doing it more for the enjoyment of it. And ski racing, I just knew that I wasn't going to make the U.S. ski team. So even though I did those things in college and and was enjoying being part of the competition and, and being part of the teams there, I think I kind of knew at that point that that wasn't going to be something that was in my future and really started looking towards what I was going to do next. Originally, I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so my major at Colby was originally was biology. And then because it's a liberal arts school, I was I had to take a, some economics courses and I just totally fell in love with economics. And it, it just got me excited, you know, like it's the way that my mind thinks and and also just waking up every day and reading the paper. I felt like I could apply what I was learning in my in my economics course to what I was reading in the paper. And that got me really excited. And so I ended up my junior year picking up an economics major as well and decided that I wanted to go down the finance route. So what was your first job after college? My first job out of school was working with Thomas Weisel Partners. I was a, an analyst on their team for about a year and a half, I think. And my goal had actually always been and kind of my hope had been to get into an investment banking M&A team. And they knew that actually from from the beginning. And so every time there was a job that came available, I was you know trying to get in the door and apply for it. And actually something came up at Morgan Stanley. It was a job on the equity derivatives desk, and I, which had nothing to do with investment banking, but I just thought, okay, well, maybe if I could move over to Morgan Stanley, then maybe I can get into their analyst program. So I ended up applying for the job and getting it and moving over there. And then in 2005, they wanted to move the team to New York. And I didn't want to move to New York. I was settled in San Francisco. I had a, a serious boyfriend. I was very happy with where I was. And I said, you know, I don't want to move to New York. And so they were wonderful in trying to help me, you know, try to find another job within a different team within the San Francisco office. But at the same time, there was an opportunity that came up in M&A with HSBC uh, in New York. And I interviewed for it and ended up getting the job. And I, for me, that was what I had wanted to do since I graduated from school. And I felt as though this was my opportunity to, to do what, what I had, what I had been wanting to do for so long. And so I ended up taking the job by the HSBC and moving to New York and I loved it. I thrived in it. It was exactly what I wanted and I worked really hard, but I also feel that investment banking in particular is if you work very hard, they're typically rewarded for that. So all along the way, you're working in finance after a love for like an econ class, which is great. What happened to all the sports programs? Did you end up working out all along the way as you were working in, in finance? When I moved to New York City, the long hours just, it didn't even seem possible to be able to work out at all. I was working 100, sometimes 120 hour weeks, which I think people feel like is completely unreasonable and it is, but I, I was doing that and I, I wasn't working out at all. Did you not care? Like you didn't miss it? And you're like, okay, I'm fine with this because you love the investment banking part so much? Yeah, I, I think that I was just so so wrapped up in that, in what I was doing in that moment. It wasn't something that I actually felt as though I missed at all. And occasionally I would get out and maybe have a weekend away and be able to, to ski or 
occasionally I would go and play golf or something like that. But for the most part, I didn't really miss it. But at the same time, I picked up some pretty bad habits. I started smoking, which there were times when you hadn't even had lunch and it'd be, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And you'd say, I have to go get something to eat. And they wouldn't let you go and get something to eat. But if you said you were going to go down and smoke a cigarette, that was okay. And so that was kind of how it all started is I would go down to smoke a cigarette and I would just kind of take a puff. And then then I would smoke a whole cigarette and then one cigarette turned into two cigarettes or three cigarettes. And so that was sort of my break. And it was what allowed me time to to just kind of get away from the desk for a moment and have a second to breathe. And and that was really what it all how it kind of all started. But I mean, I know that smoking is not particularly healthy and I don't think that I was ever addicted to the nicotine or anything like that. It was more just the habit of smoking and, and kind of the motion of, of actually just smoking the cigarette that I was really attracted to. So you you ended up being a smoker. You're working 120 hour weeks. Your activity levels dropped to zero. <laughs> like yeah, at yeah. what point did you say, all right, let's then become a professional triathlete? Yeah. <laughs> so in 2009, I was out at a bar with a friend of mine from, from Colby. He had he also worked in finance, but he had put on about 50 pounds since since college. And he was talking to all of us about how he had signed up for this triathlon to lose weight. And I said, oh, I'll go do that with you. That sounds like fun. And we kind of like <laughs> one thing led to another. We ended up betting and I said that I was going to do it. And so we went up and we did this triathlon together. And what was the time period of when you committed to to the race? Like how much prep time did you have to train? I think maybe we talked about the race in April or May and then the race was in June, but I didn't prep at all. I mean, there was literally, I think I went, maybe went for like two or three runs before the race. I went and bought a wetsuit two days before the race. I I actually did go swim once just to make sure that I could swim the distance. And somehow did people think my, you were crazy I mean, yeah. two or three months and you're like, all right, I'll just sign up for a triathlon. I don't know. I mean, to me, I knew, I, I think I knew that I could do it. And so I didn't, I didn't know how it would go, but I, I, I was athletic enough to know that I could probably get through it, but I went up and did it. And it honestly just totally changed my life. I, had such an amazing experience. It was exhilarating for me to be out and doing something really active again and kind of just remembering what it felt like to breathe hard and sweat and have the endorphins from from working out. And I remember crossing the finish line and the woman in front of me was 54 years old because they write your age on, on your calf and just feeling so inspired by the people that I was seeing around me, you know, this woman who's 54, somebody that was also racing that um, was seemingly overweight, but was putting themselves out there to do something good for themselves. And it was such a, it was just such an inspiring moment for me that I literally quit smoking on the spot. I decided that I wanted to do more of them and I wanted to make more time in my day-to-day life to be able to kind of get back to a healthy place again. I decided to sign up for another race uh, in September. And so I actually trained for that one. I went out and I bought a bike and I started running and swimming. And um, we went down to this race in Florida and I did the second race and I won. And I ended up improving my time by like 40 minutes. And that was the point where that was what kind of switched in my, my mind and where I started thinking about potentially racing professionally and 
trying to become a little bit more serious about it. Up until that point or those first two races, it was just all for fun and because I was enjoying it. And then when I went and did that second race and I won, Todd, my friend, said, wow, you might be able to go to the Olympics, Sarah. Like you just improved so much and you're so good. And suddenly this dream that I had as a little kid of going to the Olympics, it just it was like the thought bubbles were going off. And I thought, oh, my gosh, maybe this is it. This is my chance. And at that point, I started taking it seriously and, and really thinking about um, maybe what I could do within the sport. So then how did you balance that and 120 hour work weeks? Because the training is intense and you have to let your body heal and sleep and like all that stuff. So how did you manage that? So in 2010, which I, I consider 2010 to be my first real year doing triathlon, I think 2009 was sort of me dabbling in it and, and kind of being introduced to the sport. But that was hard for me. I actually ended up being sick a lot. I was injured a lot. And a big part of that was because I was working these crazy work weeks. I was getting home sometimes having not slept at all for two days in a row. Sometimes I was getting home at three in the morning and I would be so adamant about getting a workout and then I would hop on the bike trainer and do a bike workout at three o'clock in the morning. But you know, as with anything, you can't really survive on so little sleep. And so it just lent itself to me being sick and injured a lot. And so I definitely performed better and I was improving in 2010, but I didn't really feel like I was able to see what kind of potential I had. And I I hired a coach, uh, Matt Dixon from Purple Patch Fitness, who is actually still my coach to this day. And he said to me, if you really want to see how good you can be and you really want to take this seriously, you have to cut down your work, work hours. And so in 2000, at the end of 2010, I approached HSBC and I said, um, you know, I think that I have a chance to maybe go to the Olympics. I don't know, you know, but I want to have the opportunity to see. And with my travel schedule and how many hours I work right now, like I'm just, it's just not giving me the opportunity to kind of see if this is a possibility or not. And they actually agreed to let me cut my work week down to 40 hours a week. So I worked four days, 10 hours a day. I love how that's part-time. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. 40 hours is 40. <laughs> when I was out of the office, I didn't have to be on conference calls. I was, you know, I, they knew I wasn't going to be available. I didn't have to travel internationally. And, and, you know, prior to that, a huge part of my job was tr- spending a lot of time in, um, you know, a lot of different countries. And, um, so the whole structure of my job completely changed for one year and it made all the difference in the world. So in 2011, I was still racing as an amateur, but I went out and I won every amateur race that I entered that year. And then I ended up at the world championships being the top American amateur and fourth overall. That's so awesome. You had mentioned to me, but I wanted to recap for our listeners that you then officially left investment banking to focus solely on triathlons and you turned pro at the end of 2011. Can you describe how that works professionally for you in terms of calendaring and events? Like, which races do you prioritize? Right now, the last two seasons, so 2018 and 2017, my whole season was based around the World Championships, the Ironman World Championships in Kona. So my entire, the entire construct of my season is towards that one goal. And for me, the last two years, the goal has been to win Kona. And so, for example, both leading into 2018 and leading into 2017, I took a really, really, really big break and came into the year not fit at all and took a long, long time to build in. So then when I started to have to start prepping for Kona, 
I was in a really good position. I was fresh. I was just in a place where I would go into Kona in my best possible place. In years prior to that, typically I would pick one or two key races and then just kind of structure all of my my year around that. But but the last two years, yeah, everything has been geared towards that. So typically I will definitely do at least one Ironman just to be able to try out a different strategy or try out some things that we might want to want to try out at the world championships. And then I'll do a bunch of half Ironmans that mostly are just about around building fitness and speed and prepping myself for for Kona. This year I was 11th and actually the year before I didn't finish, which was a bit heartbreaking for me. And then the two prior years I actually finished seventh. And so my strategy this year is changing a little bit. I'll still put a focus on Kona, but it ends up being a hard thing to put your whole year focus on one race. And then if it doesn't go to plan, you almost feel like your whole your whole year is a failure, to be honest. This year I had made a massive mistake during the swim and it cost me a top five finish. What was the mistake? How you line up on the start line and who you line up next to oftentimes will dictate what group you end up swimming in and where I lined up on the start line. So you could line up far left, you could line up far right, you could line up sort of in the middle. There's like a whole strategy to it and it will depend race to race. It depends on the currents and the winds and who is racing. And I mean, there's so much that goes into thinking about what your position is going to be on the start line. So who I ended up lining up against or with, I lined up next to the person that I wanted to be with, but the people to the left of me were not the right people for me to be lined up with. And when the gun went off, the way that the race kind of like played out at the start just put me in a position where I got dropped immediately. And so the goal for me had been to swim with this one particular pack. And I just, the way that it played out didn't work out. So how does that work? That's the start of the whole race. And you have multiple hours after that. How do you talk yourself out of that when you're in the middle of the swim and then also after the swim? Because then you have the, the running and then the biking part. The one thing that I've learned with Ironman is it's it's a nine hour day, give or take a little bit. And nine hours is a long oh. time. Like think about it. You know, you can wake up in the morning and go for a run and have breakfast and like go to the movies and go shopping and bake right. some cookies and go out for drinks with your friends. <laughs> and then you still probably have like another five hours. To right. I mean, it's a long time. So I think for me, it, it actually probably comes back to my childhood and, and my brothers and and with my parents, you know, and this kind of notion of never giving up even when things get tough. I know that the day is really long. And even though sometimes things like that can be huge mistakes that can cost you significantly at the end of the day, it doesn't mean the race is over. And so I just have to move forward. You just never know what can happen. Nine hours is long. There are people all the time who drop out of the race because something happens in the run or they actually ended up going out way too hard on the bike and they just completely blow up. So you just have to continue executing in the best way that you can. And and that's what I have. To, that's what I do. You know, there are things in nine hours, nothing is going to go perfectly all day long. There's always going to be things that happen. So, you know, three in 2015, when I finished seventh, I was second to last out of the water and I ended up moving my way up the entire day and finishing seventh. What do you say to yourself or do you say to yourself to anything when you're just tired and you're physically at your limits and you're like, ah, like, I, you know, I, if I have like, I don't know, a hangnail, I'm like, oh, I'm done for the day. Like, <laughs> How do you, you know, talk yourself through it for nine hours? The amazing thing is that you stay focused for nine hours. And people ask me that all the time. How do you stay focused or what do you think about? But because it's such a long day, you have to be 
so meticulous with your process. It's not even like you have to execute a strategy, but you also have to be meticulous about your process. And what I mean by that is if you are not eating enough calories or you're not drinking enough fluids or you're not paying attention to keeping your heart rate at the right level or your power output or your speed or your pace or you know anything, then it can completely cause your whole race to unravel. And so on the bike, for example, I drink every every 10 minutes and I eat every 20 minutes. And then when I go through aid stations, I'm making sure I'm pouring water on my feet. And you know, between the aid stations and drinking every 10 minutes and eating every 20 minutes, you're thinking about staying as aerodynamic as possible so that you know you're avoiding the winds and whatever. And you're thinking about your pedal stroke and keeping tension. And then you're looking at your heart rate and your power. And I mean, there's so much to think about. And then you're also thinking about based off of what you see going on in the race, how you're going to execute strategically. So even though it seems like a long, a very long day and it is, you're very busy, you're very busy and you stay very, very focused. I mean, right. it's like going into work one day and having like this massive deadline at 7 PM or something like that. And just having to like put your head down and just be on it for the entire day. And then when it's over, you take a deep breath and you're exhausted. I mean, it takes me a month, three weeks to a month to recover from an Ironman because the mental and physical exhaustion that you feel afterwards is just, it's crazy. When you think about your whole career path as a professional triathlete, there's going to be a lot of loss exposure and failures and daily failures in training and, you know, failures by not making like the podium. But what has been one of or the most impactful failure for you, either personally or professionally, that you could share with our listeners? I would say my DNF in Kona two years ago was pretty devastating for me. I I am an athlete who almost in every race that I do, if it doesn't go well, I'm able to say, okay, well, that one didn't go well. Okay. I just need to rest and pick myself up and keep going. Like I have this very pragmatic approach to how I race. And I completely understand that you're not going to have a great race every single time you get out onto the race course. Um, And because I had a bad race, it doesn't mean that I think that I'm a total failure or anything like that. So generally I'm quite pragmatic. But in 2017, we put everything into Kona. I flew out there and trained out there when my cycling coach who works very closely with Matt came over from New Zealand and we spent like months out there training and learning every aspect of the course and every nuance. And we tried out different shoes and we were like practicing where I was going to eat certain nutrition. And I mean, there was just so much effort and energy and thought and money and everything that went into this race. And I, I didn't finish, which is only the second time I've ever not finished in my life. Like I always believe you get yourself to the finish line. And there were medical reasons behind that. I had a huge electrolyte imbalance and was having like convulsions and like all this crazy stuff. So there was, I physically could not finish the race yet. It shook me so much. Like I just completely lost confidence in myself. And that's one of the things that I feel like I've always had is this belief in what's possible and always kind of like working towards and not being afraid of working towards this really hard goal. And suddenly after this race, I just, I just lost this. I lost my confidence in myself and it has taken all year for me to, to get that back. And for me, that's definitely been the hardest thing for me to go through just because 
my whole life and everything that I've done, I've always had confidence and belief. And I, I don't know when I lost that, I almost felt like I felt lost as a person, you know, because that's just something that I've always relied on and to not have that really shook me. And I ended up having to speak to a sports psychologist and there was just a lot of kind of internal demons and battles that I had to work through to be able to get back to a place where I could believe in what was possible and believe that I deserved to be there. And I find that so fascinating because you are uber confident and uber decorated as an athlete. For you to have lost that confidence in this sport and in yourself is not a small like statement to say. Yeah. How did you get it back? I mean, you mentioned you, you talked to a few coaches and then folks, but is there anything else that you can share with listeners who might feel at a low in their business or their, you know, their, their, you know, side gig or something. But I feel like that's what the show is about is really harnessing that and saying like, how did you do that? Right. Cause we all have bad days or bad races or bad training sessions. But when you really do have that huge moment, you're like, holy shit, now what? You know? So how did you get out of that? At first I was very afraid to admit to anybody that I was feeling that way because, because I've been this pillar of confidence and belief in everything that I've done that for me to admit it out out loud that I was feeling that way was something that was, I was very embarrassed about that. I felt I didn't want to be perceived as being weak or needy or dramatic or anything like that. So it was a really hard thing for me to even kind of get my head around. And then once I did, you know, I had several conversations with my coach and that was good because I felt like I, the way he responded to me was very positive. And um, it was a huge sense of relief because I was just so scared to even admit that in the first place. But then I think he and I came up with an approach of things that I needed to do to try to, to try to get that confidence back. So one of the, one of the things was I spoke to a sports psychologist and that was a great thing for me because he was somebody that I didn't have a relationship with. There was absolutely like no concern over judgment or even if he did judge, like he was just this neutral party that I could pretty much be completely open with. And that was kind of a, something that I took a lot of comfort in. But then I was in, in Kona doing a training block, getting ready for the world championships this year. And I called Matt, my coach, and I just said, I'm so stressed. Like, what if this happens again? Or what if I don't perform or whatever? And he said to me, he said, Sarah, you can, you can only control the things that you can control. And if it happens again, it happens again. Or if you don't perform, then you don't perform. But the only thing that you can do right now is go out onto the course every day and put your head down and try to be the absolute best you can be. And for whatever reason that it's like it brought it all back into my, in perspective. Like I was so concerned about and so scared of the outcome again that I wasn't even thinking about the process or sort of like what I needed to do to kind of get there to set myself up. And so whatever he said to me or what, you know, that, that one thing, it kind of brought me back to the present and allowed me just to think about each day at a time, go out and try to perform as best as I can today and then tomorrow in training as best as I can tomorrow. And it totally changed my perspective. It just brought me back back to the present. I was able to have a really effective training block and that brought my confidence back so that by the time I got to Kona, I was so confident and comfortable and back to where I wanted to be that I was in a good place. 
were you relieved when you were finished with Conan? Cause you were like, I did it. <laughs> I was relieved before the race even started because I had, it's like I had been fearing it all year and just that one conversation with Matt. And I don't know if that's going to be effective for everybody, but sometimes just somebody has to say one thing and he said the right thing. And it allowed me to prepare in such a way that I went into the race. I just went into the race feeling really prepared and really good. And so I, I went into race day confident and and ready to go and relieved, relieved because I had been fearing it all year and suddenly I wasn't fearing it anymore. Have you noticed anything about your training that is age related? Like as we, I mean, I, I get older and I have kids and I just notice I move slower. I'm, my body's like yeah. making noises that it didn't 10 years ago. How much of that affects your career? That's a great question. I, until this, I'm 38 and until this year, I didn't honestly really feel anything. Um, I felt like I recovered well and I didn't really feel like age was a factor, but this year for the first time I have had noticed a big difference in terms of my body and how it feels. I'm actually performing at a higher level than I ever have before. The numbers that I'm seeing on the swim and the bike and the run are better than anything I've ever produced before, but it takes a, a bigger toll on my body. And actually, I just met with my coach on Tuesday of this week. And one of the things that we talked about is in years past, I've typically done five days of intensity in a given week. So I usually have two recovery days and then I have. So I'll have recovery day, three days of intensity, a recovery day, and then two days of intensity. And going into this next season, we are actually going to limit my number of intensity days to um, three and sometimes maybe four depending upon where I'm at in the season, because I need a little bit of extra recovery time. And so that is key. I have to get m more massage. I mean, typically I usually get body work done once a week historically. And this year I was having to get two or three times a week because it's just like to keep my body moving. <laughs> it, it, you know, I noticed a real difference, but, but beyond that, I think that there's a toll psychologically as well. And, um, I'm at a point where I, I, my husband, and I definitely want to have kids and, um, I'm 38 and I am definitely feeling, I feel actually a big sense of frustration because there's a lot I still want to accomplish within my professional career as a triathlete. And yet because of my age, I feel like I'm being forced to think about, this fact that I need to have kids because of your biological clock. Right. And I don't know, like it, it's, it's just, it's something that I really grapple with because I definitely want to have a family, but then how do you know when the right time is? And, and for somebody like me where the, my job is a hundred percent physical for me to take that time off to have kids, it then takes a very long time to be able to come back and get back to a place um, with your body to be able to perform at this world-class level. And then I just, I don't want to put myself in a place where it's too late. And we've talked about it. And I think that he and I both feel comfortable with this notion that if I couldn't have kids for some reason, we would be very open to adoption and things like that. But of course you want to have kids biologically if you can. And so it's been a, actually quite a stressful period for me right now with seeing how my body's changing and the fatigue and like 
it just takes a lot more maintenance to be able to do what I do. And that takes a toll mentally, but still really wanting to put myself out there and perform. And then also feeling this pressure on the family planning front to feel like, oh, you know, I have to start, I'm kind of the clock is ticking and I have to start thinking about having kids now. And that pressure frustrates me. (laughs) Right. Well, one, I just want to thank you for sharing that. I I feel like women take on so much and your career, I never thought about it this way, but like, if I think about having kids, I think, all right, it's going to impact my career because you know, you're, you're pregnant and I'm in sales. And so I have to be grounded. I can't travel. And then you're out of the office for whatever, three, four months, but at least I could come back for you, it changes your whole career. It does, yeah. Which I never thought about it, but that is frustrating is such a small description of that. Like you almost have to change your whole calendar year just to even be pregnant. Like do people even race if they're pregnant? You're physically probably not encouraged to do that by doctors. Not really. There was a there was actually a woman recently who announced that she was pregnant and um, she went and tried to race and then ended up pulling out. And to be honest, I think that, you know, if you're going to go out and do a road race, you know, running or something like that. It's no big deal. But to do an Ironman, I mean, it's what I personally experienced just for myself in terms of the adrenal fatigue and the impact on your hormone levels and things like that. I just, I can't imagine it's actually that healthy if if you're caring. The thing is, is actually just in the last few years, there's been a whole host of women, professional triathletes who have actually had kids and come back. And that's been quite an inspiring thing for me to see because prior to that, any female that's gotten pregnant, her career has pretty much been over after that. And then to see these women really changing the landscape for us about, okay, you can be 36, 37, 38, have a child and then come back and keep racing is definitely something that's really interesting to me, I think. But it's hard. It's kind of a scary time. And where your income is actually largely dependent upon your race results, it's also just a scary thing. You know, what if I do decide to get pregnant and I have kids and then I would come back and then what if I don't race well? And then you're not just supporting yourself and your husband, but also you have this baby to look after. And there's just so many unknowns. It, it It's definitely a pretty stressful, stressful decision. Wow. So how do you think about your career from that perspective? So say you, whether you have a child biologically or you adopt, you also now have a family and your schedules are different and your priorities are different. How do you think about the next call it even three years or five years in terms of what you want out of your career? I just kind of went through this whole process of trying to think through it because I was, I was feeling in a place where I was feeling forced to consider this notion of motherhood and was I ready or am I not ready or whatever. And what I have decided for myself is that I have these goals that I still want to achieve athletically and um, I'm going to go for them. And I'm going to put off, we are going to put off starting a family for two years to allow me the time to really dedicate 100% of myself. And to be honest, that's another concern of mine, which is that within this sport, it's you don't just wake up in the morning and go train and come home and then the day is over. It's like everything I eat, what time I go to bed and the amount of sleep I get. I mean, there's so much mental effort that goes into what I do that I feel like when I start a family, I want to be able to dedicate at least more of myself to my family than probably what I would be able to give right now. So we've decided for me to go after what I want to go after for another two years and then and then we'll reevaluate. But I think at that point we'll probably be ready to to have a kid. And, and I think we'll do that and then see what happens from there. Maybe I decide to come back or maybe I don't. But I think 
at least for me, having the opportunity to continue to chase the goals that I want to achieve for the next two years. And we've made that decision. No matter what happens two years from now, at least I'll be able to kind of either close that chapter in my life and my career and move on or, you know, we'll see. But I feel like I've got kind of a time frame and a goal in mind. So what are your goals for the next two years? You know, my big goal is still to win Kona. That's the thing that I go after with Kona being the world championships. And that's the thing that we'll continue to work towards. But there are some things that, for example, right now I run just under three hours off the bike for the marathon. And for a half marathon, I run about um, 119-ish, which to give people some perspective, 119 is about just over a six-minute pace per mile. And three hours or 258 is about a 645-minute mile. And so particularly in the run, my big goals are to run 250 off the bike, which is about a six, just over 630 pace, and 115, which is like a 545-minute mile, which would be pressing, for me, that it would be kind of setting a new standard or pressing the limits of what the best of the best have ever achieved in the history of the sport, at least on the run end. I really want to walk away from the sport having at least cracked the swimming code and made the gains that I've been working so hard for so many years towards. And I kind of feel like I'm right on the edge and I haven't achieved that yet. And so for me to, to like, if I were to walk away tomorrow, I just feel so frustrated in myself that I, that I didn't get it. So that's, you know, something that's important for me. And then on the bike, it's, I've achieved a lot in the cycling and I feel really proud about where I'm at, but I think that it's just kind of like continue to try to take a step up. But the big goal is to try to win Kona. If you in two years look back and you did an amazing, you know, you have an amazing track record and your schedules are fantastic. Would you be disappointed if you didn't win Kona? No, I think that ultimately what I want to do is walk away from the sport feeling as though I got out of myself everything that I could. And what I feel like right now is that I haven't done that. I feel like there, I can run a lot faster. I feel like I can bike better. And I definitely feel like there is a lot more in me in swimming that just hasn't been able to come out yet. So in two years, if I've done that and I didn't win Kona, that's okay. Have you ever felt you ran the fastest or swam the fastest or biked as best you could? Knowing you for the you know a short time period I have, you seem like a, a very driven person. Will you ever feel like you're good enough for the bar that you set for yourself, which is very high? I think so. I think that, for example, one of the things with running is there are some triathletes who have come from, uh, there have been professional runners in the past. They go over to triathlon and they don't run that well in triathlon. And a big part of that is because you like, just biked for 56 or 112 miles beforehand, and they just don't have the strength and the resilience. So one of the things with the sport is the longer that you do it, you become stronger and more resilient. And so things like your run prowess are able to start to shine through. So for a long time, pretty much since I started the sport, we've always known that I have a lot of potential in the run, but it's taken years and years and years of just training to be able for me to finally start showcasing that. And just, I would say in the last two years, my run has started to steadily improve. So I think that I kind of have had this idea in my head of what, where my potential is, but I, uh, for a long time, but I just haven't realized it yet. 
Is there anything else that inspires you to get better every day? Yeah, I think that the Challenge Athletes Foundation, essentially it's an organization that works with physically challenged individuals to help them be able to go out and achieve their athletic dreams. And I've taken so much inspiration from that group because you can look at people who have disabilities and they can either take on this attitude of I can't do it or they can take on the attitude of, all right, well, let me figure out how I can get it done and I'm going to do it. And you see these people out there playing basketball and running and swimming, like somebody who's blind going out and swimming in the ocean. And it just blows my mind, right? Like that's scary to me. And they put themselves out there and make themselves so, so vulnerable and in many ways aren't afraid to fail because the opportunity for them to do something that not many people are is just, it's so great. You know, I think about that a lot in Ironman races. And I think about the fact that you have these people who are truly at a disadvantage and yet they're just out there doing everything they can to get across the finish line. And that is so cool. Where can people find more about uh, you? My website, sarahpiampiano.com. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. Well, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all your stories. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 